this week, not unlike the week before it, I want to bring our time, uh, begin our time in the scriptures with a bit of a thought experiment, if you guys don't mind. So take a deep breath, clear your head, uh, close your eyes if that contributes to your ability to focus, whatever it takes, and, and really try to imagine this with me for a moment. I want you to imagine yourself sitting on a green hillside in a soft patch of grass. The sun is bright overhead, but the sky is in even blue. The, the cool breeze rustles the lush grass all around you, and, and you're actually sitting amongst a crowd. There are people all around you, hundreds of them, men and women and children, and they're all sitting and leaning forward with their necks craned slightly upward to better see and hear this singular figure that stands before the crowd. He's called uh, Yeshua Manatsarat, or Jesus who is from Nazareth. And there's something about this man, this figure, that makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. And there have been others like him. There have been rabbis, teachers, even prophets. But this guy's words make your heart hammer against your rib cage. The authority with which he speaks is like a spark in your mind that ignites passion and potential and even hope. And hope for you in this thought experiment is something in short supply. You are a Jewish man or woman living in first century Israel, and you have all but given up on the idea that the promises of the scriptures, the Old Testament, might ever be fulfilled. Your people, the, the ancestors of Abraham, of Moses, of David, feel as though they might go on steeped in the consequences of their sin forever. Your God, Yahweh, the one true creator God, had chosen Israel, your people, to become the means through which he would begin restoring a broken world, but Israel blew it. Again and again she failed. And so you live under the heavy oppression of the pagan Roman Empire. Your home, the land of your ancestors, is a pagan militarized zone. They tax the poor into poverty, even into slavery. Rome bullies you and your people. They beat, they mock, they insult, they abuse. Rome cares nothing for the God of Israel, let alone his people. In fact, not unlike uh, Nazis in modern thinking, Romans were villainous in every way to the Jewish people. But didn't God promise that he would return to his people? Didn't God promise that there would be a king from the line of David that would return Israel to her former glory? God promised a, a Messiah, an anointed one, a coming king that would rule and reign. And though hope has become elusive, you still manage to cling to this belief that Messiah will come. And you think of these Romans that have stolen your land and driven you into poverty and killed and raped and ravaged your people in the way that they blaspheme your God. And you imagine Messiah, this glorious warrior from God who would draw his sword and fill the streets of Israel with the blood of the evil Romans and take Israel back for God and bring God back to the temple once and for all. And here you sit on this hill with so many others like you, so many stories represented in this crowd of oppression and abuse, so much anguish and longing and hope stretched thin. And before you stands this teacher, this prophet, his words aflame with the passion of God. And you allow yourself to consider for the first time, though hope is a very scary thing, could this man be Messiah? Has the time finally come? But then... 
Jesus says something so shocking it can hardly be believed. Let's read it. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I, uh, I have an extended family member uh, who was a, a Marine. And for years, he was stationed in uh, Japan. So once, this family member mentioned to me, he and I were kind of talking about Japan and its culture and what it was like to live there. And he mentioned that he would love to someday return to Asia, specifically on August 9th, and he wanted to visit the city of Nagasaki. And he wanted to do this while wearing a T-shirt he claimed he actually owned that said, the atomic bomb crafted in the USA, tested in Japan. Because it was on August 9th, 1945, when an American B-29 released the second of two atomic bombs that erupted on Japanese, on Japanese cities, killing at least, we think, 129,000 people in the process. That second plane over Nagasaki was piloted by a gentleman who was a Catholic. In fact, a Catholic military chaplain led that pilot in communion just before the mission began. And the pilot steered the B-29 over Nagasaki, which was the epicenter of Japanese Catholicism. Some even speculate that the pilot may have used Urakami Cathedral, which was a Catholic church at the heart of the city, as a means by which he would identify his target. So one Catholic releases a bomb and 10,000 Christians die. Many years later, that priest who led the pilot in communion, experienced a radical change in his thinking, uh, specifically in December of 1975, when he said this, to fail to speak to the utter moral corruption of the mass destruction of civilians was to fail as a Christian and a priest as I see it. I was there, and I'll tell you that the operational moral atmosphere in the church in relation to mass bombing of enemy civilians was totally indifferent, silent, and corrupt at best, at worst, it was religiously supportive of these activities by blessing those who did them. Catholics dropped the A-bomb on top of the largest and first Catholic city in Japan. One would have thought that I, as a Catholic priest, would have spoken out against the atomic bombing of nuns. Three orders of Catholic sisters were destroyed in Nagasaki that day. One would have thought that I would have suggested that as a minimum standard of Catholic morality, Catholics shouldn't bomb Catholic children. I didn't. I, like the Catholic pilot of the Nagasaki plane, the great artiste, was heir to a Christianity that for 1,700 years engaged in revenge, murder, torture, the pursuit of power, and violence, all in the name of our Lord. I walked through the ruins of Nagasaki right after the war and visited the place where once stood the Urakami Cathedral. I picked up a piece of censer from the rubble. When I look at it today, I pray God forgives us for how we have distorted Christ's teachings and destroyed his world by the distortion of that teaching. I was the Catholic chaplain who was there when this grotesque process that began with Constantine reached its lowest point so far. 
1985, Father Zabelka returned to Japan on August 9th, much as my extended family member had wanted to do himself. But Zabelka did so in order to make a pilgrimage. He walked from Hiroshima to Nagasaki in a public gesture of repentance, asking that the Japanese people might forgive him for, quote, bringing you death instead of the fullness of life, misery instead of mercy. If Father Zabelka is to be believed, or if we are to somehow entertain his idea, if we have, to some extent, lost our way, how do we begin to find it again? How did the Church of Jesus move from the shocking words of our teacher given on that hillside to communion led over atomic bombs? In order to get to the bottom of this, we are actually working our way through Jesus' teachings on nonviolence in Matthew chapter 5. So if you missed last week, please, if you have the time, go back and listen to the podcast. It's an essential piece of this conversation. So tonight, let's look again to the words of Jesus and work through the text line by line and try to figure out what it means for us tonight. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, immediately, many of you recognize the first bit of Jesus' citation, Love your neighbor. After all, the command to love one's neighbor is not only well represented in the Old Testament, Jesus himself spoke very plainly in saying that really the central message of the entire Old Testament be, could be summarized in one command, love God and, anyone? Love your neighbor as yourself. Thanks, Dave. Right. Love your neighbor as yourself. To Jesus, this is the greatest command of all, to love God and to love others and central to his entire way of life and his overall set of teachings. But it begs the question, who the heck is my neighbor exactly? Uh, in first century Jewish thinking, your neighbor was defined by geographic proximity, the way we think of neighbor today, or it was taken to simply mean other Jewish people or maybe people with whom Jews were friendly. So Jesus speaks to this crowd and he brings up a line of thinking with which he assumed they are familiar. You have heard it said, love your neighbor. This is from the Bible. But then Jesus goes on, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Problem is, the whole hate your enemy bit is not from the Bible. Instead, we believe this had become a popular reading of a particular passage in Leviticus, and consequently it became a Jewish figure of speech, which went something like, this is my modern paraphrase, hey, yes, love your neighbor, Leviticus, for sure, but also hate your enemy. So it's this popular reading of the Torah that Jesus addressed when he says, you have heard it said. And of course, Jesus goes on, verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now remember, in context, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't abolishing the Old Testament. He's revealing God's true intent that eventually gave way to certain laws that are featured in the Old Testament. Jesus does this to draw his disciples' attention away from the letter of the law, as it were, and to the heart of God that is behind that law. The law was meant to correct disobedient Israel, but it isn't the truest good that God is after for his people. So Jesus says, you think Leviticus 19 is about loving neighbors and consequently hating enemies, but I tell you, this is what God desires. Love your enemies. In fact, Leviticus 19 actually offers a bit of a foreshadow of this when it says, do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. 
So imagine the radical dichotomy of such a statement. Jesus is saying, you think Leviticus 19 is about liking people you like and hating people with whom you have a problem, but I'm here to tell you the correct reading of this text is about loving your enemies. And that word enemy is ektron in Greek, a word with incredibly broad implications. And ektron applies to any and all people with whom one doesn't get along. This could be very personal, so like the grumpy neighbor or a jealous coworker or an abusive parent, or it could be a national or a political enemy as well. And the word is intentionally plural, meaning love your enemies, each and every one of them, all of them, which is, of course, a bit troublesome, isn't it, when you begin to think about it? After all, isn't it radical enough <laughs> that Jesus would suggest loving a personal enemy, the estranged spouse, or the backstabbing friend, or the mean-spirited boss, whoever it might be. Radical an idea, though it may be, many Christians, I think, would desperately love to leave it there and have to deal with just that. Let us struggle to love the grumpy guy in the apartment next to ours and not broach the topic of, say, militarism. Let us not broach the topic of America first values and national defense and preemptive strike and on down the list. And the problem with such a limitation is that Jesus' words are decidedly all-inclusive. And think back to our thought experiment from early, the way, earlier, the way we began the teacher. No one in Jesus' audience would hear the word enemy and not think Rome immediately. Rome, the occupying military force, the political powerhouse, Rome, the evil oppressor that ignores and abuses and tramples our land, our way of life, our people, our God. And remember, you're sitting on that hill yearning for Messiah, for this overthrowing sword to come from Messiah's scabbard and spill Roman blood. And you're thinking, Jesus could be this guy. And then all of a sudden, Jesus brings up Leviticus 19. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. And you're like, oh my gosh, Leviticus 19, enemies. Yes, this is it, Jesus. And then you go, wait, what? Love your enemies? You, the one that we thought could be the Messiah, your command on how we are to deal with our enemies is to love them? Now, in English, obviously, we have uh, the one word, love, and some of its variations, but to say that the word love in English has a wide application is a bit of an understatement. Like, I love Jesus, and I also love Terminator 2 Judgment Day, you know? So, in Greek, I'm sure many of you guys have heard this before, there are actually four words for love. Here's a very quick, very simplified tour of them all for our purposes tonight. First, you have eros, which is uh, uh, where we get our English word for erotic. So I'm sure that's self-explanatory. If you don't know, it's sexual love, spoiler alert, between a man and a woman. Um, you have storge, which is a bit of like a familial love between a mother and a child. You have phileo, which is a friendly love. And finally, you have agape love, which I'm sure many of you have heard before. Agape love is a love of the will. It's an act, a purposeful, intentional act of love, meaning... Agape love is to actively value the good of another person above your own good. Which love do you suspect Jesus commands his disciples to apply to their enemies? One commentator I read this week defined agape love, which, by the way, that's the one. If you, if you didn't get that joke I just made. Uh, agape love is an unconquerable benevolence, which I think is lovely, or invincible goodwill. 
I love that. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight defines the word this way. Agape love is a rugged commitment to be with someone as someone who is for that person's good and to love them unto God's formative purpose. Love for Jesus is entirely different than our modern conception of the term, which has more to do with kind of like feeling good things about someone or something. So not unlike Jesus' nonviolence ethic, if you were here last week, which rejects retaliation, but also rejects the sort of passive do-nothing approach, Jesus' command to love enemies is an active pursuit for the good of the other. Do not ignore evil, do not de-emphasize sin, but do not respond to either with violence or retaliation or hatred. Instead, love your enemy above yourself. And Jesus goes on to clarify how. And the first thing he says to do is to pray for them. Uh, just this weekend, I was talking with my friend Matt about someone he disliked very much, uh, someone that he thought of as an enemy. We were talking about this passage in context. He wasn't just telling me about someone he hates. Uh, so for a year, my friend had dedicated himself to pray for this person. And Matt told me he prayed for much more than simply a stop to this person's sin, that they would get right, that they would stop being so lame. Matt prayed blessing over this enemy of his every single day, that his enemy would be blessed, that he would have life and life to the fullest. And my friend told me that as the days and the weeks and the months passed, he discovered that what had begun as just a sheer act of will had transformed into an authentic, spirit-filled desire. He found himself loving this enemy of his and genuinely desiring their blessing. Luke's biography of Jesus goes on to cite additional examples of how enemy love is carried out. Jesus says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And again, for those of us who apprentice Jesus, who would call ourselves disciples of Jesus, we learn not from Jesus' teaching alone, but from his lifestyle as well. If you know the story of Jesus' life, he did these things. Had Jesus actually aspired to overthrow Rome with violent force, he actually had the crowds necessary to do that, some of which would willingly do so. The option to use violence was repeatedly before Jesus, and he rejected it again and again. Even Jesus' disciples, on more than one occasion, asked to employ violence against their enemies, and each time Jesus rebuked them. Jesus rejected violent anti-Roman subcultures that were around them. He taught his disciples to do as he did, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, put down the sword. And ultimately, Jesus died for his enemies, if you know the story. He expended some of his final words to pray for the forgiveness of his enemies, for the oppressive, foreign, pagan, occupying military force. Jesus loved and forgave and died rather than using violence to fight back. And Jesus' disciples did likewise. The apostles were martyred. Early disciples of Jesus were martyred. And for hundreds of years of church history, before Constantine in the fourth century, disciples of Jesus went to death before they would hate or kill their enemies. 
Now, I mentioned last week that this is an, an area one among two, the other being the, the problem of evil that has dominated much of my uh, passion and thinking and writing and studying and conversation and teaching for many years now. And one reason is because I have come to believe in my travels and conversations with people who do and do not follow Jesus um, with, with all due respect and in humility that one of the great sins of the church in the West, the American church in particular, is a flagrant, deliberate, satanic rejection of Jesus' teachings on nonviolence and enemy love. And, and I, you know, I've, like I said, traveled quite a bit around the world. And believe me when I say, the church in America is often most recognized for her disobedience to these teachings. And the way of Jesus is often rejected as a result. Many um, American Christians, I think, would prefer to have their enemies bombed rather than love them, or to torture their enemies before they prayed for them. Or we would offer up men and women and children and civilians and schools and hospitals and churches or cathedrals as worthwhile collateral damage in order that drones might rain down fire on enemies or planes, B-29s might drop bombs on them. American Christians would often rather sabotage our personal enemies than love them. We would rather gossip about them or spread dissent or cut them off than love them. And this is why I am so drawn to this Jesus of Nazareth. Not because this comes naturally to me, not because, oh, yeah, that's right in line with my way of thinking, but because this is hard for me, because it is so radically counterintuitive that it defies logic. To me, the way of Jesus is beautiful and subversive and radical and healing and profoundly difficult. But for Jesus, the command to love enemies is not pointless. It's not without purpose. Look back down at Matthew in chapter 5 and read verse 45. Why love your enemies? Jesus says, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Why love enemies? Because God does. Be like God. In the ancient world, rain was understood as a sign of blessing over one's life, especially in like an arid, agrarian society like Jesus. So Jesus gestures to this ordinary, natural phenomenon of rain and says, if rain is God's blessing, look, he blesses his neighbors and he blesses his enemies. And I love this bit of sort of poetic imagery. Jesus is so creative. He invites us to imagine even rain as a reminder that God loves and blesses his enemies which is beautiful to me. And this is why I think you guys should join me in hating the sun and uh, getting, thanks Kiana, getting excited about the rain coming up. You, you with, did that work? No. Thanks, was that Vanessa? Thanks, Vanessa. If, don't tune out if that made you upset. Stay with me for a second. So anyway, Jesus says, when you love your enemies, you become like your Father in heaven. Matthew scholar Dale Bruner writes this, if we will live this countercultural way, we will come to experience God the Father in an especially intimate way. We will become God's close sons and daughters. We will become in personal experience what we are in gracious fact, which is members of the family of God. Later in the New Testament, a princess of Jesus called Paul will write that you and I were God's enemies and through Jesus, God demonstrates his love for his enemies by dying for them, for you and for me. Jesus is inviting us to emulate God, 
to become like God, to be his close sons and daughters. And in the process, we gain intimacy with God that we did not have before. Jesus goes on in verse 46, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? So here, Jesus selects for his teaching two well-recognized enemies of the Jewish people. And remember, the Jewish people, of course, are the ones made up, who made up Jesus' audience at the time. The first enemy that Jesus cites are tax collectors. The Jewish tax collector was someone who was in league with the Roman Empire. They were something like the way we might think of like a, a Jewish informant for the Nazi party. Evil traitors. They were vile and villainous uh, in every way. And Jesus' second example are pagans, and that in context would be Romans, the evil, oppressive, occupying military force. If Jesus were giving this teaching to our church tonight, he might use it as an example in context uh, a suicide bomber or a terrorist or a member of ISIS or a corrupt police officer or a white supremacist or villainous politicians, whoever it might be. And Jesus' suggestion is absolutely incredible. Hey, don't greet only the people with whom you get along that's nothing commendable whatsoever. Greet your enemies. If you only love and interact and do life with people within your own sphere of community, your own ethnicity, your own socioeconomic class, or your political party, or your denomination, or theological camp, or field of interest, whatever it might be, then you are no different than a tax collector or a pagan. Glenn Stassen, who's an ethicist from Fuller Seminary, writes this, Loving only those who love you is the in-group selfishness of cliquishness, cronyism, nepotism, racism, and nationalism. If we love only those who love us, we see only an in-group perspective and become closed-minded to how others see things. As a result, we cannot understand our enemies' perspectives enough to deal with them effectively. We are less effective, less powerful, because we do not sufficiently understand enemies who wish us harm, and so cannot do what is effective in persuading them to do what we think is right. We grow frustrated and blame them all the more. We transfer our ineffectiveness to other people whom we do not understand. This is the powerlessness of a culture of blame. Daryl Davis is an interesting author and musician, controversial figure, who uh, one evening after a performance playing in a, a honky-tonk bar, befriended a gentleman he later learned was a very unlikely friend for him. Daryl Davis is a black gentleman, and the gentleman he'd befriended was an active member of the Ku Klux Klan. And they became friends over conversation about blues and honky-tonk and rock and roll. In fact, through this connection, Daryl befriended more folks like this man. And in this unlikely turn of events, Daryl decided he might invite them to his house and to his dinner table uh, in fact, later when Daryl learned that one Klansman had been put in state prison, he called that Klansman's wife and he offered to drive her and their children the five-hour distance it would take to visit their husband and dad uh, in jail, which is something that no one in the Klan had offered to do. And the family left the Klan behind as a result. In the years that followed, more than 20 members of the Ku Klux Klan deliberately abandoned the satanic terrorist organization, and each of them, upon departure, handed over their robes, their hoods, their medallions to their friend Daryl as a gesture of gratitude and repentance. Why? Because Daryl loved his enemies, and he invested in them. Without ever softening his disdain for the evil of racism and violence, Daryl had become their friends. 
On May 13th in 1981, Pope John Paul II was crossing uh, St. Peter's Square in Vatican City when an attempt was made on his life. The Pope was shot four times and miraculously survived. And once he got out of the hospital, John Paul II immediately visited his would-be assassin in prison that he might offer forgiveness and kindness face to face. In 2006, uh, maybe you guys remember this story, a, a gunman opened fire on an Amish school, shooting eight girls and killing five of them. And just days after that shooting, the victims' families visited the widow of the shooter that they might offer their forgiveness and ask how they could help their family. The Amish requested that all relief money intended for the victims be shared with the shooter's widow and children. And the Amish community attended the shooter's funeral in solidarity with his family who were also grieving. One journalist that I read followed that story really closely and she observed that this was an incredible witness to the historic Christian tradition of peace. And she published an article about it later and she mentioned that when she had um, kind of thought that out loud, her husband disagreed with her. And she was like, what, what do you mean? And her husband said, witness? This goes well beyond witnessing anything. They are actively making peace. Jesus, of course, invites no one into a way of life he himself did not exemplify. Jesus was famously criticized and dismissed for his willingness to destroy social barriers and eat dinner with pagans and drink with hookers and the scum of society and visit the homes of tax collectors and traders to enjoy their company and to invite them into God's kingdom. And to us, you know, divorced from the cultural context of Jesus' day, this really sounds sweet and sentimental. Uh, we like to imagine Jesus as an accepting, non-judgmental fellow who... Um, welcomed, you know, like victims into his home, or he went into their homes. He didn't have one himself. And, and we apply that sort of mentality to modern folks that we think of as broken or victimized or worthy of sympathy, which is great. But imagine Jesus visiting the home of a neo-Nazi to have dinner. Imagine Jesus inviting a Klansman to come follow him Die to yourself and follow me. You are welcome as my disciple. Imagine Jesus having a drink with a member of ISIS. Go ahead, imagine it. Imagine Jesus smiling and laughing with this member of ISIS, drinking wine, telling him about the coming kingdom, and inviting him to leave his old life behind and have a place in the kingdom of God. Imagine Jesus going to his death, compelled by his great love, for Nazis and terrorists and dictators and evildoers, not just for you and me and our little issues, but the great evildoers of history. And Jesus ends this teaching with a summary so shocking it can hardly be believed. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, don't check out because this last point is crucial. So many of us, myself in, uh, included, tend to read this line... Uh, to be perfect out of context and then misinterpret its meaning. Remember, this phrase isn't some new uh, disconnected thought from Jesus' uh, prior teachings. It is the conclusion of Jesus' teaching on enemy love and nonviolence. And the word uh, that we translate as in English as perfect might not be the best translation. In Greek, the word is teleos. It means complete 
or whole or mature or developed. In fact, the same word is elsewhere used to describe children who have become adults. This means that Jesus is teaching that our goal as disciples is to grow into men and women who are like God. We actually have less intimidating terms for this idea that we use all the time. We say, oh, he or she is a godly person. It's the same idea here. So in the context of the teaching from which this conclusion proceeds, Jesus is saying that loving your enemies, praying for them, entering into relationship with evildoers is how we become mature and complete and like God. And really, that isn't some radical new way of reading the text. That isn't me. Most scholars interpret Jesus' line this way. Here are some of their elaborations. This one uh, from Scott McKnight. Be perfect. That is, love both your fellow Jewish neighbors and the Roman enemies in your midst as your Father makes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on all humans, Jews and Romans. So are you to be perfect in love as your Father is perfect in love. Here's one from Stanley Hauerwas who says, We are called, therefore, to be perfect. But perfection means or names our participation in Christ's love of enemies. Perfection does not mean that we are sinless or that we are free of anger or lust. Rather, to be perfect is to learn to be part of a people who take the time to live without resorting to violence to sustain their existence. And finally, this from Henry Nouwen who says, that is our vocation, to convert the enemy into a guest and to create the free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. And this begs the question, can this work? Can the enemy ever become the friend? And to answer that, I would just suggest look around. Think about your story. Think about the stories of everyone you know who follows Jesus, flawed though they may be. Think about yourself. Think about the people in your community. Think about this family as I read these words from the New Testament over you. Paul says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Jesus the King died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus the Messiah died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You were God's enemy. How did he invite you into his company? How did he make it possible for you to become friends with God? With bombs? or drones, or fisticuffs, or hatred, or gossip, or vitriol. No, God used the incredible, self-sacrificial, generous, kind, nonviolent love of the cross of Jesus. God had dinner with us. God looked us in the eye. He said hello. He sacrificed for us, for us while we were his enemies. He listened to us. Ultimately, God preferred to die for his enemies rather than to hate or to kill them. And sometimes that works. Sometimes an enemy becomes a friend because here you are. You were God's enemy and now you are God's friend. And that was on God's behalf. You didn't do that. Other times it does not work. Many people remain enemies of God by their own design, by their own choosing. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was so passionate about this very thing that he said this, 
to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot, in all good conscience, obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as it is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour, and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. And of course, history reveals that Dr. King was someone who embodied this principle, and he was killed. And this bears repeating because those of us passionate about nonviolence like myself, we love to celebrate instances of its often beautiful effectiveness. We love to tell stories about Dr. King and Mother Teresa uh, and, and the Catholic Workers Movement and all the different examples that we know personally or down throughout history. Nonviolence can and often does stop violence and hatred in its tracks. It often does turn an enemy into a friend. But other times, you die. And because of the latter, many who are not passionate about nonviolence ignore the beautiful stories and focus instead on the impracticality of the idea. Sounds like a great way to get killed. But there's something I want us to understand tonight as we meditate on this teaching. Whether or not nonviolence or enemy love works is absolutely inconsequential. What matters is that Jesus is king, and if you follow him, you obey his commands that we might know the Father, become like Him, His sons and daughters, and have life to the fullest. And if you are looking to the teachings of Jesus and the lifestyle of Jesus, the example of Jesus, for a safe, secure, prosperous American way of life that honors American interests and sensibilities, then you have come to the wrong place. Jesus' philosophy and lifestyle led him to be framed by religious fanatics, uh, arrested by foreign pagan oppressors, beaten within an inch of his life, executed by means of the most heinous and humiliating methods the Roman Empire had to offer, and his invitation to you and I is, come, be like me. And he didn't exactly cover it up. There's a reason Jesus uses language like, take up your cross and follow me. And we love that if we think by it, oh, Jesus means, wow, Jesus, oh, die to myself. Yeah, totally. That means I should have less pride. Yeah, okay, cool. I'll follow Jesus, less pride. Which is true. Should have less pride, myself especially. We love that if it means, man, okay, wow, Jesus is really convicting me. Take up my cross and watch less Netflix, you know, or, or, or use social media in moderation. I'm going to, for Lent or whatever. <laughs> uh, but if take up your cross means love white supremacists, do no violence to ISIS, befriend the racist, befriend the corrupt politician, befriend those who hate you, even if it doesn't work, will we then take up the cross of Jesus? There is a reason this journey has been so important to me personally for nearly a decade. This is not some inconsequential tangent or an unimportant side issue that you can simply brush aside or ignore. That's good for him, but whatever for me. The call to nonviolently love our enemies is absolutely central to the way of Jesus because this is what God has done for you. Prior to 
the Roman Empire making Christianity an official state religion in the fourth century, millions of disciples of Jesus went to death in Roman Colosseums rather than hate or kill their enemies. And I understand that there are absolutely still very valid questions floating in the air. What about self-defense? What about defending the innocent? What about the military? What about the government? What about just war? What about the lesser of two evils? Um, very valid, very important questions. Uh, to dig deeper into those questions, we're actually going to be releasing a series of in-depth podcasts over the next couple of weeks uh, rather than spend months doing this on every single Sunday making you guys hate me. Uh, and we're going to try to work through every single one of those topics. I'm going to sit down uh, you know, and talk, uh, interview some of the top experts on the subject, uh, Greg Boyd, Preston Sprinkle, Tim Mackey, Gary Brashears down at Western Seminary, and we're going to ask questions and talk through the implications. If you actually have questions that you would like represented in those podcasts, um, you can send them to this number, and we will see if we can include as many of those as possible. But to end tonight, I just want us to think a bit about this idea of apprenticing Jesus, something we go on and on and on about at Van City. And here's an interesting factoid for you. Bear with me for a second. Many of us hear ideas about nonviolent enemy love, and you immediately think like hippies and peace and love and, and like the left politically and theologically, you know? But nonviolence is actually the theologically conservative position. You, you actually know this without realizing. In fact, the extreme strands of the nonviolent tradition, the, the Mennonites, the Amish, they aren't exactly known for being liberal, you know? Uh, theological liberalism, by definition, is when one takes liberty in interpreting the scriptures. And interestingly, the nationalistic, militaristic, right-wing, patriotic, God and country view is the theologically liberal position. So we're in this really strange cultural moment in which the left uh, gravitates to say the easiest example is like a liberal reading of Jesus' teachings on sexuality, for example. But they tend to have a theologically conservative reading on Jesus' teachings on nonviolence and enemy love. Meanwhile, the right does the exact opposite. They have a very conservative view of Jesus' teaching on sexuality and a very liberal view of Jesus' views on nonviolence. And this is one reason that I constantly go on and on about the way Jesus is pulling the right and the left into a way of life that will alienate and convict everyone. The left will be forced to grapple with Jesus' teaching on sexuality and decide if they're permit, prepared to submit to Jesus as Lord or pick and choose. And the right will be forced to grapple with Jesus' teachings on nonviolence and enemy love and decide if they are prepared to submit to the way of Jesus as Lord or pick and choose. And there will always be cultural seasons in which it is easier or less so to wrap your mind around the teachings of Jesus because of the cultural moment you happen to be in at the time. Years ago, I was traveling with this friend of mine. We were playing music, and I was uh, talking publicly about Jesus and about nonviolence. And it happened to coincide with the time, I don't remember what year this was, when, uh, when Osama bin Laden had been killed. So naturally, I'm up talking to people about nonviolence all the time, and that kind of... Uh, world climate was constantly coming up. The question was constantly coming up. And the conversations that I were having, because of the, you know, the heated debate going on in culture, seemed to lead me into lots of conversations with folks that went something like, yes, I get it. Jesus clearly teaches I should love my enemies, and I will, just not all of them. I can't. And uh, it, was, it, it grieved myself and this friend who was traveling with me. Uh, and then uh, just this past week, I happened to see this same old friend uh, of mine on the internet, and he was understandably uh, outraged by the recent public surge in white supremacy, like, like myself, like many of us. And this friend of mine was essentially saying, 
man, I understand that I'm supposed to love my enemies, and I will, just not all of them, just not these enemies. I, I spoke with a few guys this past week and had a conversation or two about the sort of dialogue that this topic generated in some of your communities over the past week. And as is the, often the case when this topic is, topic is broached, some very sincere, very valid, very worthwhile questions and observations are being raised. And my encouragement to you is to keep having those conversations. And you wonder things like, man, isn't this impractical? Or can't this get you killed? Or does it ever really work? Or will we ever even have to consider these things practically in our lives? And if not, man, isn't it easy for this guy to talk about nonviolence when his experience has been one of privilege and of safety? And that's, those are all very fair, very valid questions. I would never be dismissive about any of them. Um, all I want to say is for those of us who follow Jesus, all of those very valid questions have to be secondary to a much greater, more troubling, and more conclusive question. What does Jesus command of his disciples, and will we obey it? If Jesus does indeed command that we are to nonviolently love enemies, cross-shaped, agape love, given over to evildoers and to enemies, then it doesn't matter whether it works or whether it keeps you safe or what hypotheticals challenge that notion or who presents them. If Jesus is your authority, then you obey. And wherever this journey takes you, on this thing we must agree, Jesus commands that we love our enemies. So before we end tonight, I just want to pose two very simple questions for your, our collective consideration. The first is, who is your enemy? And I want to, you guys to think both broadly and then think personally about this. Because even though some of your enemies you may, may never encounter personally, you will find yourself shaped by your thinking and feeling about those, even if they're in the news or they're in a different country or whatever it might be. So think broadly. Think it's, uh, as an American, think what are our national enemies, ISIS or North Korea or whatever it might be. Think whatever politician it is that makes your blood boil in particular. Think of the people who support that politician if they frustrate you. Think of our divided socio-political world at the moment. Think of uh, the, who, who frustrates you personally, protesters or counter-protesters or a certain ethnicity or a cause and the advocates of that cause. Uh, is your enemy a cop or a cop hater? Is it a certain gender? Is it a group of people who identify a certain way? Is it immigrants and refugees? Is it those who advocate on the behalf of immigrants and refugees? Is your enemy someone who lives next door to you? A friend who has betrayed you? Is it a coworker or a classmate? Is it your mom or your dad or is it your siblings or your in-laws? Is your enemy an abusive parent? Is your enemy an unfaithful spouse? Ask yourself that first question. I'm not saying that there's valid reasons that those guys should be your enemies, but ask yourself who it is in your heart that produces enmity rather than harmony hostility rather than love. So ask yourself that first question, and then ask yourself the second question. How can you love them in such a way that they become your friend? And if you have absolutely no practical means to get at this person, or uh, you have no idea, you can access them, but you have no idea what to do, then start where Jesus starts. Pray for them. And don't just pray that they repent and that their heinousness be put to an end. Absolutely pray that. Pray that evil comes to an end, for sure. But also pray blessing over your enemies. 
pray for their families, their loved ones. Ask the Spirit to transform your disposition of hostility to one of genuine affection and Spirit-fueled love for your enemy. And then from there, if you can, say hello. Sit down and listen to someone without needing to talk back. And then talk, talk to them. Engage in a conversation. Maybe have dinner. Remember, the way of Jesus is absolutely a journey. I talked about this at length last week. I'm not asking you to step out of these t doors tonight enamored with your enemies, agreeing with everything I ever said, prepared to do nonviolent peacemaking in the streets outside or at the yogurt shop or whatever. I'm asking you to walk the road of spiritual formation with Jesus in front of you. Let him lead and understand that he will often take you to places that seem frightening or impossible or even insane, frankly. But he is good, so keep walking behind him. Don't tune out. Suspend judgment. Resist the urge to freeze in your tracks and fire back. But wait, but what about this? And keep going with Jesus. You don't have to have all the answers tonight. You don't have to agree with me tonight or tomorrow or anything like that. But continue to go with Jesus prepared to submit to his teachings in his way. He is leading us to life. He is leading us to life to the fullest. Jesus is teaching us to be like God. And God loved us while we were his enemies. And in doing so, he won us as friends. So with that in mind, let me pray, and we'll invite the Spirit to come and speak.